Journalists like to say that we are not the story. We're telling the story. And that's true. When the work is good, that's true. That's not to say that the story of some journalists and how they got to be on our televisions, our radios, in our papers, or online isn't compelling. And that is absolutely the case for Michelle Miller. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. This is a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment. The obstacles, the doubt, the plan B's, and awful first jobs. The before the cheering started years. Michelle Miller is best known for her almost 20 years as an anchor and correspondent for CBS News. She is co-host of CBS Saturday Morning. She's also the author of an intriguing memoir, Belonging, A Daughter's Search for Identity Through Loss and Love. It is primarily the story of her search for connection with her biological mother, who abandoned her for a number of personal and societal reasons after Michelle's birth. As Michelle was being raised lovingly by her father and extended family, her biological mother was a remote and mysterious figure. And that did not change once Michelle began her ascent through the broadcast journalism world. She hinted at this history during an intentionally personal CBS Sunday morning piece in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. And then the time had come for Michelle to write her story. Both my husband and one of my colleagues here at work, uh, two of my colleagues actually, after hearing my story, told me, you have got to put this to paper. And then once I hinted at it in that piece uh, for CBS this morning, I was just, there was an onslaught of people who just came at me, including a publisher who said, you know, this is a story I think that you share with so many other people. It's time you tell it. The story is, to synopsize, an incredibly complicated and complex story. You're born in 1968. So, 67. 67, okay. Uh your father, you're born out of wedlock and your mother, your biological mother, basically uh, is not on the scene. As far as you understand, uh, for m- most of your early life, and then there are connections to her along the way. Uh, what is the effect of that story and your search for connection? First, from a professional standpoint, did you see that that story was having an effect on you as you started to... Uh, create a a career for yourself? You know, um, I think I've always been in search of, I've been in search of knowledge, in search of connection, in search of belonging, right? So of course, of course, uh, it is what I do in, in my everyday profession. I mean, I always, it's funny, I say to people, a story for me, for it to be a really great story, has to have three things. It, one, it has to inform people of something they don't know. It has to surprise people in some way. And then it has to inspire them. Uh, to either act or to inspire them to feel or, but, but all those things are part of who I am. And, and it's why it's so important for me to tell stories because I think storytelling changes. It can has, it has the opportunity to change minds, opportunity to change hearts um, and, and really gives people a chance 
to validate their story. Did your telling of your own story, and we'll get to some of the specifics of that story, did your telling of your own story do that to you? Did it validate something? Did it change your heart in any way? So for me, acknowledgement, I, I do realize that I needed acknowledgement. Like, I think that's why I wrote the story because I, and why I asked my mother to acknowledge me was because I needed that. I needed, I think we all as human beings want to be acknowledged as part of the validation of who we are. Some people have a very, um, a self sense of that. Um, they, they don't, they don't need it. Um, but for me, it was, it was essential. And I think the book allowed me to acknowledge myself, my storytelling, uh, even though it has nothing to do with me, it acknowledges who I am in the everyday. And, you know, and we kind of stretch that out to the community types of stories that I tell. The acknowledgement of so many of the people who that I tell stories about, because they are either marginalized in some way, that matters. So it's it, it really is a full circle for me. There are compelling stories throughout the book. You're growing up in Los Angeles. You're being raised by your grandmother. Your father is a doctor and gets to see you or comes as much as possible, but he's very busy at his work. And there's a story, I believe you're in elementary school with some girls who thought, you thought they were friends of yours, are pulling at your hair. Right. What, what was the greater meaning of that story for hmm. you? I think the greater meaning of that story is because it was, it started off earlier in the day. Um, and, and so I have to set the scene for you. So I, I grew up in, in South Central Los Angeles um, and I grew up in a, uh, in my like neighborhood, middle-class um, families with, you know, mothers and fathers. And I went to school with all kinds of kids, but most, they were all black kids and I'm black. I'm thinking I'm black. I'm black. My grandmother's black. My, my father's black. So I see myself that way. Um, but there was, I said something and in the greater context of, as you well know, and this is, this is like, there, there's a thing called colorism in our community. It's like the layered uh, vestiges of, of slavery and how people divided communities by color and really conquered people on the plantation. That's just, that's something that's it's an insidious um, form of, 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 you know, uh, what, what, what is it I'm trying to say? It's, it's an insidious form of brainwashing, essentially. And I made the mistake of essentially um, there was some issue with hair and how I wore my hair. And someone said, um, oh, I, I want to wear my hair like that. And I said, oh, but you have such a pretty afro. I was like, you would need to wear your hair like this. And it was like an immediate reaction. I had hurt her feelings. And that was my first, like when I was first faced with this thing about like wavy hair, straight hair, curl, all the textures of hair. Like it was the first time I had sort of been slapped in the face with, oh, wait, your words can hurt in how you describe, you know, 
or compare, right? And so later that day, um, there was a hair pulling incident. Um, and the hair pulling incident came out of like really hurt feelings because there, there's all, there's like this, this, uh, layered issue of how like, somebody's hair is better than somebody else's hair or worse than it's ridiculous. It's, but, but these are children and they, they don't understand the greater meaning of what society has like, how society's impacted that. And it was an awful experience, but it's one that um, I'll never forget. And I'll never forget because I felt like I would, I was, I was responsible for it. And so I'm very, so you see how I'm like pursing, I'm, I'm sort of being very careful at how I say this, because this is very emotional and can be often miscon- um, misinterpreted. Um, I, I, I have a very textured hair, my, the texture of my hair is uh, all over the place. It can be straight one day, very curly another day. Um but um, I don't place any more value on the texture of my hair versus someone else's or the color of my skin for that matter. The story plays a major role in the book early on. So it's obviously a powerful story. Because it was a shocker to me that someone that um, I thought was my friend could so easily take something that I said and make it um, I could be, I could become her enemy or at least, or that I hurt her. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what I think it's like, it's the mirror image of what happened to me in junior high school with the boy in my graphic arts class that Otis Livingston was a part of that, uh, who was one of my colleagues here at CBS. Go figure. We crossed the coast together, but that was a very that was an in, that that story really impacted me too. Your father uh, was married at the time when you were born, uh, but not married to your mother, your biological mother, who was of Mexican descent. And as the story goes, which plays a major role in the book, uh, your part of the story is that she did not tell her family because of the shame that she would feel, and so on. And that's really simplifying it. Do you recall how young you were? when it really started to dawn on you and you started to ask more and more as you do in the book, why were we too much for her? My, my father would tell me stories about my origin in the third person, your mother and father met, they fell in love, they had you, but then your mother couldn't stay with you. And it was a very storybook way to describe my origin story when other children started to ask me, where is your mother? They saw my grandmother. They saw my father. Uh, they never saw my mother. You know, it was a natural thing for them to ask because in my, in, in, in my, you know, on my block and a lot of the kids I went to school with, they had their mothers and fathers. And so it just got easier for me to say, I don't have one. I mean, we watch Disney movies and mothers die and children are orphaned. Um, so it was just easy for me to say. And my father caught me one day and said, you do have a mother. She's just not with us. And when I asked him about it, um, he couldn't give me 
a real answer. I mean, he gave me an answer. The answer was she, she chose not to be, but that was as much as he could give me. So when he asked me to go find her, I think he gave me the permission to go seek the answers that I had been looking for as a young child, as a, as an adolescent. Um, but at the same time, he always provided, and there were always these amazing women in my life who were these maternal figures to me, mm-hmm. starting with my grandmother, my aunt Edna, to um, everyone from Zernona and Dodie and Vandella. These are names of women who nurtured me and raised me and made me feel whole. And I think that that is really... This book is a nod and a a thank you to my father, my grandmother, my aunt Edna, and all of the other women who who helped to make sure that I would feel whole. Um, you, uh, there are so many really compelling chapters of this story. Uh, one of them is at Howard University, and you show up and you find yourself not find yourself, but you eventually go to the campus radio station and those people who did campus, uh, you know, worked on campus newspapers and campus radio stations. Uh, I speak from personal experience. It was a passion. And some of us continued that passion afterwards. Others went out and got other, shall we say more orthodox, uh, <laughs> fields or jobs. So my question to you though is, so you're at the campus radio station and your father's reaction is what? Oh my gosh, what are you doing? I mean, this is what, seven years, though, maybe 10 years after Watergate and after all the president's men, the book and then the movie. So I think there was, as they say, a groundswell of interest in journalism following uh, Watergate and certainly following um, Robert Redford and uh, um, Dustin Hoffman's portrayal of Woodward and Bernstein. Uh, and their uncovering of Deep Throat and its impact on uh, Richard Nixon and his fall from grace from the White House. And so he didn't know very many African-American uh, journalists or women journalists, for that matter, who had, you know, could earn a living to the degree of which a professional like a physician, or a lawyer could. And he wanted to make sure that I could take care of myself. And that was chief among his concerns. So Zernona, who was another woman in my life, who was a friend of his, who actually was one of the first black women to have her own television show in the South, he called to have her try and talk me out of it, to kind of let me know how difficult this profession was. And I remember beating back at both of them saying, you know what, I am so passionate about this profession I can't see myself failing. If I'm going to enter something I have no passion for, aren't my odds at failing greater because I don't love it? Is there any part of that with your father's reaction? And I've interviewed a lot of people who have gone into fields that are not off the beaten path. Journalism is obviously a real field, but people who became musicians or painters or poets or writers and rare is the occasion when the parent says, oh, my God, that's a great thing. Um, is any part of that spoken or unspoken from him? Do you sense I, I'm a 
I'm a doctor in, in, in Los Angeles and a, a, and a really well-known, well-regarded doctor. And do you know how hard that struggle was? And is that, or is there a part of that? Like, Hey, we, you know, we did this no. so that you really smart going to a great university can go out and conquer the world by on wall street or in law or in medicine. Was that pressure there or no? I oh I I think the pressure was for me to succeed in whatever my chosen field was, um, but success was you must succeed. You must be uh, an asset to society. You must be able to care for yourself, and you must bring a sense of purpose in what you do for the greater good. This, these were like longstanding intentions for me. And it's why he sent me to Howard University. It's why he sent me to the university his grandmother went to and graduated from in 1916. It's, you know, his six years in undergrad and then in medical school when he graduated in 51. He was schooled by the best. Um, and I think it was this sense that, you will be a professional and you must succeed. And it's important because you have opportunities that other people don't have. And therefore you cannot squander them. And I think maybe that's what you were getting at. You can't squander an education. You can't squander an opportunity. You must do best, not only for yourself, but to ensure that you help someone else. And then that was the other thing. My family was big time about helping other people. And I'll tell you a quick story. Um, a woman saw the story that I mentioned that I'd done uh, on behest of my senior producer for after the murder of George Floyd, in which she told me, I want you to encompass uh, all of your experience in working on social justice uh, stories. And I want you to put it in one story about what has happened and what you're seeing with these protests and how there's, this really seems to be a tide turn. And I did it and I did it on, I dictated it in a stream of consciousness on my phone, delivered this piece in a 20 second turn on how racism impacted me in relationship to my origin story, that's how this book came about. And in that moment, a woman who knew a woman who worked for my dad called, put me in touch with her. And I just met with this woman, oh my God, goodness, about a month ago. And she told me the man that my father was the man who was first her doctor. She was a student, was an encourager of hers, made sure that she had a job, how he helped so many people in the community, how my grandmother would come into the office when she would work there and the things that she had done that my father would tell her about. Like These were people who not only helped themselves, but helped their community and helped people who were in their lives, who they didn't have any extended relationship with, but saw a need and saw that they could offer aid and assistance to. And this woman is now a doctor herself, not a medical doctor, but a doctor, a PhD, who is a, a teacher. She's being She's been honored at Brandeis College or Brandeis University. 
Um, she went to Pepperdine University. I mean, it's just unfathomable how you can inspire people and they can take it to great heights. And, and that's just something I've always loved about my family. And also when we hear stories about our fathers, our mothers, anyone who raised us uh, years after they've died, that's a real gift. It really is. You write in the book really eloquently, one of the lines that popped out to me, I had wrapped this resilience around myself like a crusader's cape. How so? Lovely. And I have to to give a nod to my co-writer, Rosemary Robotham. She has such a gift. Um, You know, I love Superman (laughs) as a kid. And so the Cape Crusader was one of my heroes. Uh, I think that's Batman though. I Batman was another fan. I was a fan favorite of Batman too, but either one DC comics, I was all into, but <laughs> the Cape Crusader uh, is, a, you know, there, there is something, and Wonder Woman too. There's something about standing tall in any circumstance any circumstance. And I think that this, I think belonging is my opportunity to, opportunity to stand tall in my origin story, to, to shed any shame because it wasn't my doing, to have the grace to be thankful for the fact that my parents had me, loved me, and that I had a home and that I had an education, and then I made something of myself. I mean, there's such grace in that. I'm a superhero. Because, you know, I survived survived some odds that, you know, a lot of people who have, you know, know, shame is an awful thing, and I want people to be really clear about this. Do you think? Move uh, beyond that. Do you did throughout the course, especially as you're building a career, this story, and we're only scratching the surface as far as the story of the book and the story of your biological mother and your efforts to connect with her through the years. But is the pain of that story, did you, especially early on, wear that kind of almost like whatever vagaries might happen in this business, which can be a tough business, you can't hurt me because I've been through something that is more hurtful than, oh, a news director saying this to me or a news director saying that to me? You know, no, I, I mean, I think I came into it because sometimes we're not able to verbalize what it is that we've lived through and we're not able to, it's like, that's a tiny, that's a nice little bow to wrap it up in. And you just, I just put one foot in front of the other. And just kept moving through. Like there, you know, we all make mistakes. We all have trauma. We all live through things. One of the key points in the book I make, and it was like an aha epiphany, was when I was fired for the very first time. And they always say in this profession, you're going to be fired at least once. Um, and my one of my colleagues looked at me and said, Michelle, um, a setback is nothing but a setup for a comeback. Hmm. And I, that's my motto. When you fall down, you get back up. Failure is the path to success. You've got to give it your all and shake it off. 
I mean, I, I love me some Taylor Swift, but it's like, go for it. But know that you didn't leave everything on the playing field. And, and, and all of those, all of those old cliches are, are really, they, they pass the muster with me mm-hmm. because they become these mantras. Another compelling moment in the book and a notion of it's easy to be, I always felt like it's easy to be a big shot when the light is on and for people to do the right thing. But it really takes those moments when you're, you're not yet a network correspondent and nobody is watching except for the people in the room. In this case, I'm talking about you're an intern at a newspaper in Minnesota. Oh And is it the first day or one of the first days where one of the executives says you have to basically not be a black reporter. You have to put your blackness aside and you respond. Uh, tell us about that, please. And also w- where that comes from for you. I don't know where that comes from, that gumption. Yeah. Um, mind you, I had just returned from a semester abroad in Kenya and Tanzania. That's one. So being a part of a society. I was like a, I was, I was part of the majority and there were people from every hue of the spectrum of the diaspora that lived in Kenya and Tanzania. They looked like me and some were darker, some were lighter, but I felt whole. And so coming from that space, I think into a place like Minneapolis that was also very warm to me. Let me be very clear. There was some wonderful people there and it was a wonderful experience for me. But I think this is where um, unconscious bias comes in because the publisher or the editor was a very, I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't like a mean person. He didn't mean to impart this, this notion. He thought, he was speaking a truth. And the truth to him was that being white was normal. And being black was not normal. You see that? Where he would come, so that he could say something like that and feel completely correct. And yet to me, it was it was like hitting me. It was like an instantaneous reaction. And I, I just raised my hand and I said, sir, I said, I was born a nine pound, nine ounce black female with some other stuff going on in there. But how can I remove who I am from my profession? I wasn't born a journalist. I was like, has anyone ever told you to put your white maleness aside? And it was like, whoosh. And and what and I, then I realized I turned I turned very very warm, and I said, "Oh boy, you put your foot in it." After the meeting, so many of my white colleagues, even more so than my my fellow interns, they came up to me and they really validated me in a way to say, "You hit a point because there are things about our boss that we don't relate to." And maybe now he's going to think outside of the box, whether it was class, whether it was region, whether whatever it was. And I thought, whoa, I was like, wow, well, it made sense to them, too. 
Um, okay, good. Michelle, there is um, one part of the book where you're just home from Howard. You're done. You graduated from Howard. You're back in LA and you don't have a job. Okay. Mm. And your father says to you, which is something I did not hear. Oh, go, go, go backpacking in Europe. Go find yourself, which is a beautiful part of the book. And I, people who read the book will, will love that part. But my question to you is, this is a career that, that has been on ascended for many, many years. And now working at CBS network, were there moments of doubt and were there moments of, I'm not sure this is going to work out. I need a plan B. Who? Well, the first thing I would tell everyone is uh, live a part of your life unplanned. <laughs> it was the most exhilarating adventure of my life. Um, and to the point at which I remember being in Florence, Italy with my Australian buddies, Fiona and Sue. And they told, I woke up in the middle of the night and said, crying, like tearing, like <laughs> sobbing, crying. Uh, Fiona said, what is wrong? I said, I feel so alive. <laughs> and I know when I go back, I'm not going to have this feeling. And, and so part of my profession and what drives me so is the fact that I feel alive in this, in this space. So plan B I need a side hustle. I don't know about a plan B, but definitely a side hustle. And definitely there were points in time. I have been fired. I have been doubted. I have been, I have, I've had, like, I have come so close to um, not making it to that next step. But the thing that has always gotten me away, bud, the thing that has always helped me is that I've always asked for help. Mm-hmm. And people will help you when you are, when you ask for it. And it's either help with a, 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 you know, a piece of advice, a piece of information, intel. Um, all of those things help you in, 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 in your space on that ladder climb. Hmm. And so, no, I plan B I knew I could always go back to Aunt Edna's or my cousin Reggie's and, and sleep it off. I'd have a place to stay. But uh, a plan B in terms of like another profession, uh, knock on wood, can I please find some in here or Micah there? No, I want to be doing this for the rest of my life. I love it so much. Lastly, Michelle. We have only scratched the surface in terms of your family story that is beautifully told in the book uh, and the complexity of that story. My question is, at the risk of asking an obvious question, what impact did that have on you when you started creating your own family? I think I, I just wanted to be present and I wanted to be honest and I wanted to be um, approachable to my children. Um, and I think I am. I, I, you know, I I have doubts about the kind of mother I've been. Um, and I think every mother, uh, to be honest, is always second guessing the things that they have done. But I have created an amazing village of moms to surround me, 
who have helped me raise my children. I mean, from, you know, Hope and Juby, who started off when they were little, to the Annalises and the Hassanis and the Cookies and Monique's and Deidre's. Like, these are wonderful people who, who like, and Abigail's who stepped in and made sure that I had backup. And it takes a village as a real, it is a real, it's not only an, it's not only like a saying in the African, the African community, but it is what I believe wholeheartedly. Uh, I could not have raised the amazing young people that I have in my life without the village that I created. I can say I created that village, um, definitely. And um, I'm so, so grateful to all of those amazing women and men who were there for me. Michelle, congratulations on the book. I've always enjoyed your work at CBS News. And the book, is a, the book is a really compelling read. Thank you, sir. And thank you for having me. Michelle Miller of CBS News, the co-host of CBS Saturday Morning. Her new memoir is entitled, Belonging, A Daughter's Search for Identity Through Loss and Love. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. Thank you as always to editor Lou Pellegrino. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on the journey.